ridden a train or a subway before, you might have heard these words as you were preparing to leave. As you leave the train, please mind the gap between the train and the platform. On July 22nd, 2013, it was a typical Monday morning commute in Tokyo. Millions of people were heading to train stations, getting on trains, and then getting off trains to get where they needed to go that morning. Among them was a lady in her 30s. She got on the train that morning. As her train pulled into the railway station in Saitama near Tokyo, the doors opened. She prepared to get off. But instead of stepping onto the platform, she actually fell into that eight-inch gap between the platform and the train and was trapped at the waist between that 32-ton train and a wall of concrete. One moment earlier, she might have been thinking, am I going to get to where I need to go on time? But now she has bigger problems. Before too much panic could set in, an announcement over the PA came on, said that a woman was trapped by a train. Immediately, train officials jumped into action, and 40 volunteers joined them to push the train to the side. The, the train was built with this suspension that would allow it to, be, allow it to lean without getting damaged. So at, as the train was pushed, enough space was created so the lady was pulled to her safety without any injuries to clapping onlookers. And after just an eight-minute delay, the, the train was on its way. I want you guys to check out this picture of this amazing rescue that happened in Japan. As you can probably see all those volunteers pushing the train to the side and pulling the lady out to save her life. This woman in her 30s was trapped with no way to save herself. She needed a life-saving rescue because she was in life-threatening danger. And notice that there were two groups of people early that Monday morning on the there were, there were rescuers and there were onlookers. The rescuers weren't content simply seeing this woman trapped between the train and the platform. They had to jump in and do something. And the onlookers, they were there. They saw what happened, but that was about it. Like this lady, there are people all around us who are pinned down, unable to free themselves. People who are trapped in their sin and in danger of eternal destruction. As ambassadors for Christ, we have marching orders to give the life-saving gospel to those in life-threatening danger. As ambassadors for Christ, we have marching orders to give the life-saving gospel to those in life-threatening danger. My message this afternoon is pretty simple. I just have two parts. It's, first is the gospel, and second is ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors for Christ. The word gospel means good news. That's all the word means. And it's good news because there's bad news. And we won't understand this good news, this gospel, unless we first understand the bad news. You see, God at the very beginning created everything good and to reflect his glory. But we mess things up, and now we live in a sin-sick world. And this, the problem isn't out there. The problem's right in here. Romans chapter 3 10 through 17 puts it this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Sin separates us from a good and perfect God. But here's where the bad news actually gets worse. The punishment for sin, the wages for sin is death. And this is everlasting death in hell without parole or pardon. Isaiah 66, 24. And as they go out, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. This is God speaking. For the worms that devour them will never die. And the fire that burns them will never go out. All who pass by will view them with utter horror. You see, church, those who die in their sins are sentenced day and night, forever and ever, to an everlasting garbage dump where the worms never die and the fires never go out. The New Testament warns us that the Lord Jesus is coming back a second time, not as a baby in a manger, but coming in flaming fire to bring vengeance on the wicked who will suffer eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But you know, most Americans deny that hell even exists. They don't think it even exists. But we know from Scripture that it's real. And God has been gracious enough to even give us evidence of hell's existence. In a book on evangelism, the author shares the testimony of an, of an ER nurse. The nurse talks about a, a one particular patient who had gone code red, flatlined, meaning no heartbeat. The author writes, she and some other medical personnel rushed over with the defibrillator to try and bring him back to life. They applied the paddles and revived him. She said that he started screaming and shouting, the heat, the heat. Then his heart stopped again. They brought him back a second time. He shouted, the flames, the flames. They lost him again. Four times the man flatlined and was brought back, each time shouting about the heat or the flames. After the last time, he died, and they couldn't bring him back. She said all the doctors and nurses just stood there for a few minutes and stared at the body. They all knew that man went to hell. He was screaming it to them before he even got there. Pascal writes, Between us and heaven or hell, there is only life, which is the frailest thing in the world. I want to take a moment, because this is such a heavy topic, to just dispel two misconceptions we might have about hell. The first misconception is that, well, because God is loving, he can't or he won't punish sin. Well, because God is a loving God, he loves everything that's good. And by definition, that means he has to hate everything that's evil. So God hates lying. He hates stealing and pornography and blasphemy and adultery and idolatry. He has to hate those things. Because he's a loving God, he has to hate sin and also punish it. Most people think, well, my God is just a God of love. He would never send anyone to hell. Well, we have to realize, church, that uh, Jesus Christ was the very embodiment of love. He alone walked this earth and loved God and loved others perfectly. And it was love that motivated Jesus to tell other people about hell. 
because he didn't want people to go there. He wanted to warn them so they could avoid hell. In fact, Jesus talked about hell and judgment twice as much as he talked about heaven. The second misconception people might have is that uh, somehow God is cruel by punishing people in hell. There will be degrees of punishment in hell, and because God is a God of perfect justice, his punishment is never cruel or unjust. Those who are in hell will get exactly what they deserve for their sins against a holy God. But that's where our problem lies. Because the Bible tells us that no one is good, not even one. No one deserves heaven. All of us have code red. All of us have flatlined. We're dead in our sins and our transgressions. We're all pinned under this 32-ton train car, unable to help ourselves. Max Stiles writes, Don't miss that at the cross, we see ourselves in all our sin and evil and wickedness. Isaiah 53 and Romans 3. All of us, from Mother Teresa to the lowest, vilest child molester. What awaits us? What we've all earned is hell. Does that offend you? Are you angry at these comments? But I contend that if this news, this bad news, offends rather than humbles, you are the one most in danger. Well, church, we know that the... The good news is that the story doesn't end there. The good news is that while we were yet dead in our transgressions and sins, God, rich in mercy and love, made us alive together with Christ. In Christ, our sins are replaced with His righteousness. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the last verse in that section. 5.21, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was made to be sin for us. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus Christ became a sinner. It just means that all of our sins, all the times we violated God's law and broke his commandments, all of our sins were placed on Jesus, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Financial advisors out there will, will tell you, don't co-sign a loan. Don't co-sign a loan. Because if you co-sign a loan and your co-signer runs off, you're left on the hook. You're responsible to pay off that whole debt. When Jesus died, that's exactly what he did. He co-signed his name to our debt of sin by taking ownership for our sins. And in fact, he was telling the father, Father, they have no way to pay for their sins, so I will pay it for them means Jesus died in our place. He became a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. And as Jesus Christ hung on that cross, all of God's righteous anger against all of the sins of all of God's people was unleashed on him on that cross, and it crushed him. The cross was an unnaturally cruel death. It was designed to degrade. It was ugly. It was offensive. But it was the way God chose to redeem the world. The cross is ugly. It's offensive. It was designed to degrade because our sin 
before God is ugly, offensive, and degrading. But church, it's not enough that the debt of our sin was wiped out. It's not enough because God says we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Our account, the debt of our account being wiped out and brought up to zero isn't enough. Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, who shall sojourn, who shall live in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. So only he who walks blamelessly all the time, does what is right all the time, and speaks the truth all the time and does it over an entire lifetime, is able to dwell with God. Having zero in our account isn't good enough. Our account needs to be filled with the righteousness that's acceptable to God. Let's look again to verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. This is God wiping out the debt of our sin. But here's the other part that we need. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So not only did Christ co-sign our debt of sin, he's filled our account with his righteousness. This is that great exchange that takes place where Christ takes our sin and then gives us his righteousness. Isaiah 53, 11, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This afternoon, if you belong to Christ by faith, Christ has taken away your sin and given you his perfect righteousness. And if you belong to Christ, that means in Christ, you are a new creation. The creation that started good in Genesis 1 and 2 fell into sin in Genesis 3, is now recreated in Christ. Verse 17. Let's look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, creation becomes new creation. In Christ, old ways of sin become new ways of righteousness. In Christ, dying bodies become resurrected bodies. In Christ, paradise lost in Genesis becomes paradise regained in Revelation. And the Bible calls this radical change being born again, the new birth. There are Christians out there who think that uh, somehow we contributed something to our salvation, that somehow we had to exercise our free will, bring our free will to the table. But uh, this image that God gives us here, this, this new creation, this new birth, silences those ideas. Let's just think about that for a minute. How many of you here caused your own birth? You decided, you know what? Before I'm actually born, I'm going to choose my birth date. I'm going to choose, let's say, May 4th, 1980. Uh, I'm going to be born naked, so I want it to not be too hot, not be too cold around springtime. It's going to be nice weather. I'm going to choose May 4th. And then how many of you thought, well, if I'm going to be born May 4th, I'm going to need to be conceived nine months later. That's going to be August 4th. I'm going to decide that. And then how many of you created yourself, thought, well, I'm going to choose to be a female born in America to this particular couple? 
well, that's ridiculous. We contributed nothing to our own birth. Only God creates and only God recreates. All this, all this new creation is from God. But this, but this salvation isn't just new creation. It's, it's reconciliation. It's a restored relationship with our creator. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The new creation is, is a means to an end. And that end is God himself. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And here's the purpose. This is what we're getting at here. That he might bring us to God. The purpose of the new creation isn't so that you know, one day in heaven we could set up shop in our own little corner of the universe, build our own little kingdom, and then God can stay off and do his own thing in his slightly bigger corner of the universe. The purpose is that Christ might bring us to God. Everyone likes the new creation, right? I mean, if you, told, if you ask someone on the street, what do you think of this idea of going to heaven? One day you're going to be rich, you're going to be comfortable, you're going to have everything you want. Who's going to say no to that? But not everyone wants reconciliation with God in Christ. And that's, that's the difference between the lost and the saved. The saved want Christ even if we can't get heaven. The lost want heaven even if they can't have Christ. John Piper says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends and all the food and all the leisure and all the natural beauties and all the physical pleasures you ever wanted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? For the true believer, the answer is a resounding no. All the health, all the friends, all the leisure, all the beauty, all the pleasure are nothing compared with Christ. And that's why that new creation and reconciliation go hand in hand. God removes our sin. God gives us his righteousness. God makes us a new creation so that we can be reconciled to him, to know him and enjoy him forever. Does that amaze you? Does the gospel blow your mind? Do you ever pause and worship God, because this isn't just good news, this is the best news that anyone could ever hear. And church, this is where being an ambassador for Christ must start. It has to start here. Because you can't offer to others what you don't have yourself. If I'm not amazed by the gospel, but the fact that God would save a wretch like me, how could others be amazed by this gospel? Because God has reconciled us to himself, we now have the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then the first half of verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We need to take a moment to just go back a couple verses to 
look at the motivation. You know, what, what motivates us? What drives us to be ambassadors for Christ? Obviously, an amazement with the gospel is a huge part of that. But it really comes down to the greatest commandment, love for God and love for others. Love for God and love for others. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. This means for us as people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, it is a delight and duty to be his ambassador. It's a delight because the love of Christ controls us. The love that Christ had for the Father, the love that he had for us now defines our life. Just think about it. If Christ loved us that much, if he was willing to endure that much for us, how can we not obey him? How can we not take up that privilege to serve as his ambassador? King David says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is written within my heart. But it's not just a delight. It's also a duty for us. Verse 15. Verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for us so that we would live for him. We're not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, we belong to him so we can glorify him. In the words of Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The king has told us, go and make disciples of all nations. The king has said, you will be my witnesses. The king has said, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached throughout all the world. The king has said, as the father has sent me, I am sending you. And if the king has given us orders, if we love him, we will obey him. Spurgeon puts it this way. Uh, Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. So if you're a Christian, that means you're a missionary. You are sent by Jesus Christ on his authority to take his gospel, his good news to those who are lost and dying in their sins. You might never, you may never board a plane to take that gospel to a remote jungle somewhere far away, but you may have to walk across the driveway or street to take the gospel to your neighborhood. You may have to walk across the hallway to take the gospel to your office. You may have to walk across cyberspace to take the gospel to your Facebook friends. We're all called to be ambassadors of the gospel, ambassadors for Christ. But as ambassadors, we don't just do it because we love God. We, we love other people. Verse 11, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing that one day everyone will stand before Christ at his judgment seat, we tell others about him. We tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. The context in this passage is is one where Paul is defending his ministry. There There are some false apostles who were pointing at Paul's suffering, and they were saying, well, because Paul was suffering in all these ways, he was disqualified 
for ministry, that he wasn't living his best life now. But Paul actually counters that and, and, and says the reverse. Actually, it's, it's his weakness and suffering in the power of the Holy Spirit that authenticated his ministry. And we know that Paul went to great lengths to serve as an ambassador for Christ. Some, some things that are just crazy. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. What are some of those crazy things that Paul did for the sake of the gospel? What are some insane things that Paul did for Jesus? Well, he, he talks about that in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger. The question for all of us here this afternoon is how far would we go for the sake of the gospel? Would we carry our cross like that? 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will be persecuted. In a prior life, I worked as a chip design engineer at Intel. And while there, while I was working as an engineer, God provided opportunities for me to share the gospel with others. And, and I, you know, by his grace, I, I tried to be faithful with those opportunities. I had a chance to work with many people who were all great engineers, great folks, uh, including this lady who worked at another Intel site in Oregon. Uh, she was putting together a course, a training course for other engineers, and I was one of the teachers. She visited our site in Texas, and we had a good working relationship. And the Lord gave me this burden to, to, to bring up spiritual topics, to bring up God, to talk about how good you have to be to get to heaven. I had lots of similar conversations with coworkers before, and most of them were curious or even interested, but not this time. This coworker was, was deeply, deeply offended by this. In, in fact, so much so, she felt the need to report me to, to HR, to, to human resources, and even tell me that what I did was offensive and that, that she reported me to HR. Now, HR never contacted me, but this is a, this is, this is a real example of opposition to the gospel, opposition to the gospel, persecution that you and, my, my, you and I might face. And yet, as we take a step back, as we look around the world, it's actually nothing compared to what Christians in the Middle East or Christians in other places are suffering. Uh, Christians who very well might be martyrs simply for being ambassadors for the gospel. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And you can hear uh, in Paul's voice that, that, that deep sense of urgency, that where he is just utterly burdened with the souls of people around him. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. See, Paul wasn't content just to be an onlooker. He had to be a rescuer. He is begging his audience to get on the lifeboat. He is pleading with those who are sinking to eternal destruction and urging them to come to Christ be reconciled, turn from your sin, trust the Savior. Our family recently 
took a trip to Texas for two weddings, visit some family. It was a great time, very relaxing. Uh, it, was, it was so long that we felt like we entered almost another universe. We were gone for, for three Sundays. While we were there, we, we stayed with Teresa's parents, and you know they're not believers, and we've had opportunities to share the gospel with them, and they are, they've always been very respectful and listen and even ask questions. And, but, you know, they just don't sense their need for Jesus right now. While we were there, I didn't want to be pushy because, you know, we had already talked about the gospel many times before. But I also didn't want to just wait for them to bring it up because, I mean, that may never happen. I mean, none of us are guaranteed another day or another hour on this earth. So the, the Lord was prompting me to, to just bring up God, bring up issues of the afterlife with them yet again. And I was praying that the Lord would do that. I was praying that the Lord would provide that right opportunity, that it wouldn't be pushy, but, you know, it would be gracious and, and yet bold. And the Lord answered that prayer. You know, we uh, had a chance to be, in the, uh, an extend, to be in an extended car ride with my father-in-law. It was just, you know, me and my father-in-law and then the two boys in the back. And, you know, as we were just in that car ride, you know, the Lord just provided this opportunity for me to just, just talk about, you know, you know, retirement. You know, my father-in-law has worked for many years, and now he's retired. And, and I just, just asked him, you know, now that you're retired, now that you're kind of in the final stretch of life at this point, have, have you given any more thought about the afterlife? You know, what's, what's beyond this life? Don't you think we were created for something more than just this temporary life? We didn't get too far in the conversation, but, uh, you know, I was grateful that the Lord answered prayer, and, 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 you know, my family had yet another chance to, to hear about their need to think about the most important things in life. As I begin wrapping up here, uh, I want to just talk about prayer, uh, because prayer is, is going to be God's tool that he will use to fuel our zeal for evangelism and to move us to action. And I want to just talk about four different ways that, that us, that we as a church can be praying as we think about how we want to be faithful ambassadors for the gospel. Four ways we can be praying. Uh, first, let's pray that we would grasp the gospel each and every day. And this is really the most important prayer request because I could have spent the last half hour, 40 minutes or so, guilting you into sharing the gospel. Shame on you for not sharing the gospel more. Don't you care about the lost and where they're going? But, you know, that would last a week. What will help us to be faithful, zealous, passionate ambassadors for Christ is the fact that we're just amazed by the gospel. We're amazed by what he has done for us. And so that means, church, learn every day. Discipline yourself every day simply to worship God for his amazing gospel, for his amazing grace. The fact that the only reason we didn't wake up this morning and end up in hell was the grace of God, that, that infinite, abundant grace, in God, grace of God in Christ. Because if that gospel excites you, you'll want to share it with other people. Think about the things that we get excited about. Things we get excited about. We can't, we can't stop ourselves from telling other people about it. Free water ice at Rita's. People are posting that on Facebook, telling all their neighbors there's a line at the local Rita's. Free coffee at Wawa or Dunkin' Donuts. 
the opening of a new Chick-fil-A in our very own neighborhood. A woman rescued after trapped by a train car. Good news is meant to be shared. And if you are a new creation in Christ, you've been reconciled to God, and now you have the privilege of telling other people about what God has done for you. So pray that you would grasp the gospel every single day. Second, pray for boldness. Pray for boldness. The Apostle Paul needed boldness. He needed prayer for boldness, and so do we. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And we need this gospel because the go- we need this boldness because the gospel is uncomfortable. We need boldness to tell people the bad news that they violated God's commandments and they're under his judgment. We need boldness to tell people the good news that Jesus Christ died on a brutal, bloody cross as payment for our sins. And we need boldness to call people to response that eternal life is given only to those who turn from their sins and trust in Christ alone. So we need that boldness to, to, to lay out that bad news, the good news, and a response. And in this day and age, we need boldness to proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Boldness to tell people that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Boldness to tell people that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And to tell them that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we need boldness because fear of man is our greatest obstacle in sharing the gospel. Fear of man and rejection. But here, this is where... That, you know, our fears and our weakness can be used to our advantage. Our weakness can be a good thing because it can drive us to Christ. It can drive us to God to receive help from the Holy Spirit. Spurgeon says, only break the ice and begin, and out of weakness, you too shall be made strong. God does not need your strength. He has more than enough of power of his own. He asks for your weakness. So that means, church family, that we can, we can learn to embrace our weakness. You know, I know in my own experience, when, uh, more often than not, when I, when I want to share the gospel, uh, there's fear. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, there's fear that just grips me. When I want to give a tract to someone, a gospel tract, when I want to maybe give an invitation or start up a spiritual conversation, fear is right there for me. My wife, Teresa, can, can spot this a mile away. She'll notice when, you know, I'm, I'm wrestling with fear. And she'll, she'll notice that I'll, I'll just get real quiet. I'll get shifty-eyed, you know, like have this sort of paralyzed deer in the headlights look because, because I'm gripped by fear. And at that moment, a million questions are racing through in my mind. Uh, sh- should I give them a track? Should I bring up the topic of God? Should I do that right now or should I wait till later? Uh, how will people respond? Will they reject me? Will they like me? How would it all go down? And I've, I've slowly learned that in those moments that the Lord simply wants me to pray, to, just to pray that he would help me, pray that he would give me discernment, pray that 
he would give me love and compassion for people. That even at the moment, if I feel like I got to get this gospel out, maybe it's motivated a little bit out of guilt, but Lord, give me love. Give me compassion for this person. Help me to just make you known to this person who doesn't know you. So that means fear is a good thing. Don't waste it. Let it move you to pray, to pray to God, to pray for boldness. And we need boldness because we can be tempted to run and hide from those messy parts of the gospel, to change the gospel, to make it less offensive to people. We can take the offense of sin and the cross and judgment and change it to, well, God just has a wonderful plan for your life. Again, this is where Spurgeon is so helpful. Sir Surgeon, you are too delicate to tell the man that he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without their knowing it. You therefore flatter them. And what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves. At last, they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumbers from which they will awake in hell? In the name of God, we will not. So let's pray that we would grasp the gospel. Let's pray for boldness. And third, let's pray for opportunities. Colossians 4.3. Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Evangelism Explosion Day is this Saturday, May 7th. It's a full day of learning about evangelism, but not just learning, but doing the work of evangelism. If you're at all interested in participating, uh, please talk to our brother Bill Davis. Bill Davis, you just raise your hand so people, people see you. Oh, I'm sorry, I got the date wrong. Saturday, May 6th. Thank you. Once a month, we have folks from our church who go to do evangelism at 69th Street Terminal. Uh, we, we go there, we, we just give out tracts, we have conversations with people, we pray, we invite them to church. Uh, it's been encouraging to just see what God does. We go there just trusting the Lord, and we've prayed with people to receive Christ. We've seen people uh, we've invited to church actually come and visit Risen Hope. Uh, it's exciting stuff. And then Jim Donahue has also put together a seven-session training course on evangelism called the Proclaim Course. It teaches tons of practical tips and how-tos on how to share the gospel in different situations, how to approach this, what are some strategies, uh, details we simply can't get to in a, in a sermon like this. And if anyone's interested in taking or doing the Proclaim course, uh, feel free to contact me or the church office if we have enough folks. We'll definitely want to run the Proclaim course for Risen Hope. And fourth, fourth and finally, pray for the lost. I know this, is, this sounds obvious, pray for the lost, but... Uh, but the question needs to be asked, how often do we pray for the lost people God's put in our lives, for our family members, for our coworkers, for our relatives? If we want to see God work, we must pray. And when we pray, we remember that salvation is of the Lord, and that gives us great confidence to go and share the gospel because it's not up to us to get the results. Remember, someone has to be born again, and that can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We simply need to be faithful ambassadors, faithful to make known the mysteries of Christ, the realities of what he's done. And when we've done that, we're a successful ambassador. 
at that train station in Japan, there were onlookers and there were rescuers. By the power of the Holy Spirit, church, let us be rescuers. By the power of the Holy Spirit, let's be faithful ambassadors who take up our cross daily and follow the marching orders of our Savior by taking the life-saving gospel to those in life-threatening danger. Amen. Let me just uh, close, our, close our worship service here with just a time of prayer, and then we can be dismissed after that. Just let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us every day to be amazed by what you've done for us. Lord, we were dead in our sin. Lord, we were separated from you. We were lost. Lord, we were headed straight to hell when you and your mercy gave us Jesus Christ, Lord. Out of your love, out of your infinite grace, Lord, you rescued us. Help us to be amazed. Help us never to lose sight of what you've done, what you've given to us, Lord, this great salvation. And Lord, with this great salvation, help us to be bold. Lord, we freely confess that we give in to the fear of man. Lord, we, we care more about what other people think of us than what you think. Forgive us, God, and give us boldness, Lord. Boldness to lay out the truth of what your son has done so that those who hear the gospel can be saved. And we pray that you would give us day-by-day day opportunities to make Christ known, that you would open a door for the word, Lord. You would open opportunities for us to have conversations with our next-door neighbor, with our cubicle mate, with the person we sit next to on the train, with people that we see all around us, with the people at our grocery store. And I pray that you would just provide these natural opportunities to extend an invitation, to talk about who we are as followers of Christ, to call them to consider the claims of Christ. And finally, we pray for those lost. Lord, those who are unable to save themselves, those who are dead in their sins, we pray that you would rescue them by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would cause the lost around us to be born again, for a revival to happen, that you would grant those who are lost to have repentance and faith, Lord, faith, Lord that they would come to you and trust in you and be rescued, God. Lord, we need more of you, God. If we want to be able to walk out these things in faithfulness, in boldness, Lord, we need you, so we pray that you would come and meet our church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Church, you are dismissed.